One of the things that I love and I cherish about uh, the pastoral ministry, I think one of my favorite things, just for me personally, are faithful church members. Just church members that just are, are there and they're uh, continually faithful and they attend and they serve and they don't complain. They just do the work of the ministry. And uh, we normally don't do this, but I do want to recognize somebody tonight. And that is our brother, Sam, that uh, I know <laughs> you hate this more than anything. Uh, but uh, due to a job situation, Sam is leaving us and uh, he'll be going to the free state of Arkansas from the communist state of California. Um, but Sam has been, he, just, he wrote that song we just did. He has been a mainstay in music ministry here. Um, and before even I got here, before Darren got here, he held the music ministry together. It was him doing that. And so he is a pillar in this church. Sam, thank you for your service. We're going to miss you and pray that your job doesn't work out and you come back. That would be great. But Sam, we love you. and We're thankful for your service. And Sam would, would prefer that nobody even knows he exists. So I know that's uncomfortable, but we love you, brother. Well, on a different tone here, turn to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28, as this is the evening of October 31st, commonly known as Halloween, I'd like to talk to you tonight about ghosts, witches, and the great white throne. I grew up participating in Halloween, just like all my friends, like my culture, all my school buddies, all my neighbors, and a couple of not-so-genius ideas were part of my growing up years. One year, my best friend and I decided to dress up as a three-legged, two-headed man, by getting a giant pair of overalls and stuffing ourselves into them. And we thought that was great, except we only had one bucket for candy. And by the end of the evening, we realized we got ripped off. We only had half the candy. And so we were thinking that that would be a great idea, and it wasn't. All the kids at public school got excited about Halloween. Not to the extent that happens today, of course, but decorations of ghosts and witches and skeletons appeared everywhere. And Generally, it was just thought to be kind of a fun holiday. It didn't start in, on September 1st like it does now, um, but it was still just something we all did. And so I want to talk about Halloween. My purpose tonight is not to try to create some sort of false legalistic standard about Halloween. That wouldn't be helpful. We have a lot of traditions we utilize which have pagan and occultic roots. The days of the week are named after pagan gods, and we can't stop using those. The Christmas tree is believed by many to have been originally an ancient fertility symbol, and yet it's become a representation of, of Christmas and the place where gifts are placed. Would we say then that Christians are, are paying homage somehow to ancient pagan fertility rites? Not at all. And we don't consider it pagan, and, and we've simply joined in a cultural event, and we don't give honor to anything unscriptural. And so how do we answer that question on the way to church tonight, in my neighborhood, there, there were more trick-or-treaters than there are ants in central Texas. They were just everywhere. And so what, what are we to think of this? My purpose tonight is to simply walk through some truths from Scripture related to Halloween and hopefully encourage you, especially if you're raising children right now or helping with your grandchildren, to really consider a question that the Apostle Paul asked the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6.14, the question he asked was, what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, I want to consider that question. I want us to remember that when Jesus said in Matthew 4.16, he, he quotes Isaiah 9, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. I want to remember that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophetically exclaimed that John's purpose was to point people to Christ and thereby, quote, give light to those who are in darkness and in the shadow of death. Luke one seventy nine. to have us remember that John 1.5 says that the coming of Christ is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And to remember that speaking of Jesus, John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so my purpose tonight is, is not to make a man-made list of, of, of rules about Halloween but rather to point to a greater principle which Halloween represents. And that is the principle of following the culture versus acting on our new nature in Christ. You have to decide in your own conscience what that means for your family concerning not only Halloween, but frankly all iconic cultural practices. 
And so I just want to walk through some truths about Halloween from Scripture. But first of all, let's familiarize ourselves with the holiday just a bit. The word Halloween is derived from the term All Hallows' Eve, which is today, October 31st. All Saints' Day or All Hallows' Day is is the next day, tomorrow, November 1st. And so Halloween is the eve of All Saints' Day. Most believe that the origins of Halloween can be traced back to ancient Ireland and Scotland around the time of Christ. On October 31st, the Celts celebrated the day because it was when animal herders moved their their animals into barns and pens and prepared to ride out the winter. And this was also the time of the crop harvests. This annual change of season and lifestyle was marked by a festival called Samhain. It looks like Samhain, but it's Samhain. And it means the end of summer. Well, for a godless people, that void of truth was filled in with superstition associated with this time. Superstitions included the belief in fairies and that the spirits of the dead wandered around looking for bodies to inhabit, that this was a, an important time of year spiritually in the, in the occultic minds of the Celts. Since the living didn't want to be possessed by these spirits who were wandering around, they dressed up in costumes and paraded around the streets making loud noises to hopefully confuse or frighten the spirits. In addition, the new year began for the Celts on November 1st. And so the, the day of Samhain was believed to be a day that was neither the year past nor the year to come. In other words, there was no accountability. And so on that day, chaos ruled, practical jokes ruled, even violence at times. Later, around the 5th century, as the Catholic Church developed and moved into the area, instead of adding a new day to celebrate, it took over the Samhain celebration. November 1st became All Hallows' Day, where all the saints of the Catholic Church were honored. October 31st was All Hallows' Eve, becoming Halloween. A later custom developed where people could go door to door the next day requesting small cakes in exchange for the promise of saying prayers for some of the dead relatives of each house. And this arose out of a religious belief that the dead were in a state of limbo before they went to heaven or to hell and the prayers of the living could influence the outcome. And this is, by all accounts, the precursor to trick or treat. What about the jack-o'-lantern? The jack of the lantern. This apparently comes from Irish folklore about a man named Jack who tricked the devil into climbing a tree. How he did that, I don't know. But once the devil was in a tree, Jack carved a cross on the trunk, preventing the devil from coming down. Now, this is very much in line with ancient Catholicism, which was basically superstition. And the cross was more of an implement of power, not a representation of the blood of Christ. Well, apparently, the devil then made a deal with Jack to not have Jack go to hell after he died, if only Jack would remove the cross from the tree. And so, after Jack died, according to the legend, he couldn't go to hell and he couldn't go to heaven, He was forced to wander around the earth with a single candle to light his way. The candle was placed not in the pumpkin, but in a turnip to keep it burning longer. Turnips don't market very well, apparently. So when the Irish came to America in the 1800s, they adopted the pumpkin instead of the turnip. Along with these traditions, they also brought the idea that the black cat was considered to be reincarnated spirits with prophetic abilities and so it appears that the origins of halloween are a mixture of old celtic pagan ritual superstition and early catholic traditions and believe it or not there's an entire field of study on the psychology of halloween secular psychology has no real answers for us on eternal issues such as sin and salvation and sanctification But psychologists at times have made useful observations about human behavior, and while they don't have solutions or cures, their observations can be instructive. One popular observation is that Halloween, along with other scary things like horror movies or haunted houses, that Halloween gives people a way to simulate fear, to practice being afraid while knowing that you're actually safe. In other words, it's a way to experience fear without actual consequences or cost. Another psychologist sees this observation in a more therapeutic light that Halloween, quote, gives people permission to openly express and address their feelings and concerns about death and fear itself. 
In other words, let me get used to death so it doesn't scare me as much. The same psychologist has observed that at Halloween, social boundaries and even morals are put aside to let things like death, murder, violence, and sexual immorality become normal, at least for a day. We've all noticed that Halloween highlights things which represent the fears of humanity, spiders and bats and skeletons representing death, graveyards, scenes of death and violence. You can drive through any neighborhood, even in our town, and see depicted scenes of gruesome violence in front yards. One psychologist calls Halloween, quote, a form of mass fear extinction therapy. In other words, a way to become desensitized to the actual horror that ghosts and witches, witches and death and murder and our own mortality represent. That this is a way to deal with our own impending deaths by pretending and getting comfortable with it and thinking about it. One, one researcher wrote, according to one study, Halloween allows us to safely explore our fears and violate social norms for one night which allows us to grapple with our fears, to bring them closer and embrace them. Specifically, Halloween has allowed us to understand death as the eventual and inevitable outcome of life. On Halloween night, we are able to rise above our fear of death by bringing closer those things that mystify and scare us. One of the big parts of our Halloween custom is the wearing of costumes and masks. And there's actually a psychological term concerning wearing masks coined by German psychologists called Maskenfreiheit, which means freedom from wearing a mask. What is this freedom? It's the, the freedom to leave your identity behind and to act in a way we normally would never act. Generally, this is interpreted as freedom to act in a more dark or selfish way as the mask erases your responsibility for your actions because there's no accountability. This is the idea behind the old tradition of costume parties or costume balls that I can be someone other than who I am. I can be rude. I can be provocative. I can say things. I can do things I normally wouldn't say. Psychologists have observed that the wearing of a mask tends to dehumanize someone and allow them to change into other types of people without fear of consequences. Even in our culture, we've seen in the last year, if you're walking in a grocery store, you would never engage someone in a 15-second long rude stare as they're walking towards you, right? But when you're wearing the mask, we've all seen it happen because people change. They become different. So even secular psychologists see Halloween as having meaning far beyond just fun and games. They see it as a way to play with immortality and sin without consequences, a way to attempt to face the horror of death by desensitizing yourself to it. In our day, Halloween has begun to represent more and more gruesome and occultic images, zombies, death, murder, and of course, two of the iconic images of Halloween, ghosts and witches. And so I'd like to talk about those because the Bible addresses them. Let's talk about ghosts, first of all. You've never heard me say that at Grace Bible Church the whole time I've been here. 1 Samuel 28, just to give you a context here, we're right at the end of the reign of King Saul, the first king of Israel, who turned out to be a miserable failure. The prophet Samuel, who had kept, at times kept Saul in line, he's dead at this point. In fact, likely due to the influence of Samuel, King Saul had banished all the mediums, all the necromancers, people who attempted to talk to the dead and deal in the occult. But at this moment, the Philistines have assembled a huge force and Saul is terrified. Look with me at 1 Samuel 28, beginning in verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying the trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Obviously, she doesn't recognize Saul yet. 
She doesn't know this is King Saul. And now she asks the faithful question in verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And so the woman did whatever occultic and spooky incantation she did to supposedly speak to the spirits of the dead. But there was a twist to this time. This time it actually worked. All in the sovereignty of God. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So in this moment, she receives knowledge that this is Saul But she's shocked and terrified because this is a real ghost. This is a real spirit. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? So apparently at this moment, she's the only one able to see this apparition of some sort. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why does she characterize Samuel as a god? Because in appearance, he was glorious and mighty. He's wrapped in a robe, not like a bathrobe, but clothing. The clothing of a king. Samuel was the the go-between. He was the last judge. He was a very king-like judge. He was the one who brought in the monarchy of Israel. And so to be dressed in a robe, this is like royalty, This is a man who once lived on the earth, and this is bad news for Saul. Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. In other words, the next day Saul would die. Not that he would join Samuel in being with the Lord, but he would join Samuel in death. The word ghost comes from the old English word ghast, which just means a a spirit without a body. For humans, it speaks of the spirit of the dead person. Generally, it just means spirit. Older English translations of the Bible, such as the King James Version, still use Holy Ghost to speak of the Spirit of God. We still sing of the Holy Ghost, mostly because it rhymes with praise Him above you heavenly host. That's the only reason. And of course, stories and legends about ghosts permeate every culture in history. A lot of effort in all major cultures has gone into dealing with ghosts. We would think of the extensive rituals for the dead in ancient Egypt or the worship of the dead in Shintoism of Japan to the beliefs of the ancient Mesopotamians such as the Babylonians and the Assyrians that the ghosts of the dead had to overcome obstacles and challenges to arrive at the netherworld and they were still interacting with the world in some way. And of course, ghosts are associated with haunting the earth with being fearful creatures. Ghosts are called by different names. The Dutch call them spooks. The French call them phantoms. In Latin, they're called specters. We have shades and apparitions. The Scots call them wraiths. In fact, some believe that the word ghost, which comes from the Old English ghast, came from an Old Norse word, which means to rage, to be angry. And so ghosts traditionally have been something to be afraid of. The stories of ghosts haunting the living are endless. Some are said to be terrible murderers who still create chaos in the earth. Others are said to wander the earth because something in their life was not completed. And yet others are said to stay in a meaningful location, such as the famous concept of a haunted house. But what are the biblical facts about so-called ghosts, about the spirits of the dead? Let me give you the facts. First of all, the spirits of the dead do not wander the earth. The spirits of the dead do not wander the earth. 
the, the medium of Endor was shocked when Samuel actually appeared. She was not used to this actually working. This was an exception for the purposes of God speaking to Saul one last time. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the parable of a rich man who died and was immediately taken to Hades, where he's said to be in torment and in in flames. Hades is a different place than hell, the lake of fire, which will be populated all the way at the end of all things, the final judgment. The Old Testament speaks of Sheol as the place of the dead. It can refer generally to being dead without reference to a bad or good a bad or good place, but it can reference the place where the wicked go, whether great or small, where they go immediately. In fact, Isaiah 14, beginning of verse 9, tells of how great kings go to Sheol and they become as weak and as helpless as all who went before. Listen to this. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations, All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. So the spirits of the dead do not communicate on the earth. They do not wander the earth. Speaking of communication, the second fact, you cannot speak to the spirits of the dead. You can't speak to the spirits of the dead. Not successfully, at least. You cannot. In Jesus' parable, the rich man in Hades is pictured as talking across this great chasm to Abraham in paradise with the the poor but righteous dead man, Lazarus, at his side. And the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to the earth to warn the rich man's brothers not to come to this place of torment. Why does he ask Abraham to send Lazarus? And Abraham says, no, of course, Because the spirit of the rich man cannot communicate with the living. Now someone might say, but there are countless stories of people seeing ghosts and speaking to the dead. Seances and occultic rituals have proven this. And and they seem to know things that can't possibly be known except by that person. That doesn't prove anything except that there's a power great enough to simulate communication with the dead. And that, of course, can only be satanic power. And there's fact number three about ghosts. The spirits of the dead are done interacting with this world because of sin. They're done interacting with this world because of sin. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. No wandering ghosts. No, no in-between world. Death is the result of sin in the world as part of the judgment of God. And so, For a so-called ghost to interact with the world in any fashion is to say that this curse is partially undone by the power of the dead person himself. And that's not possible. It's not possible. And so the biblical reality is that the spirits of the dead are either with the Lord or awaiting judgment in Hades. And generally, our cultural playing with the concept of ghosts, it really denies the sovereignty of God over life and death and give so-called ghosts a power that simply don't belong to the dead. The dead are utterly helpless. They're powerless as they await judgment. They have no power. And of course, the other iconic image of Halloween is that of witches. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. While you're finding Acts 16, let's talk about witches for a moment. Our word witch comes from the Anglo-Saxon word wicca, We get witch as the female form and wizard as the male form. But the word witch has historically been used of both males and females. In fact, in John Wycliffe's original translation of Acts chapter 8, he calls Simon the magician, Simon the the witch. But since about the 13th century, the term witch has settled into speaking of a woman who has formed some sort of deal or covenant with Satan or with demons and by satanic power, is able to cause harm and destruction to people. In the Old Testament, there is no Hebrew word for witch. Witchcraft is defined in the Old Testament by concepts such as sorcery. Sorcery is very specific to using drugs or chemical mixtures with supposed magical qualities. Sorcery and divination, attempting to foretell the future by means of magic or false prophecy. Older English Bible versions use the word witch, but it's more accurate to speak of the one who does sorcery or divination. 
The law of Moses was clear. Exodus 22, 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. In the New Testament, both sorcery and divination are seen as part of what we define as witchcraft. Galatians 5.20 says the people who practice sorcery will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, the Greek word, this is a, the Greek word that we get the word pharmacy. Speaks specifically of using substances or chemicals to achieve some sort of wicked or selfish purpose. And we see an example of divination in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, Luke tells the story. Look with me at Acts 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, right here at, at the surface, what do we learn about witchcraft from this? Well, first of all, we learn that it's demonic in nature. We learn that it's contrary to the will of God. And we learn that witchcraft is the enemy of Jesus Christ. In fact, we have an English word that our English Standard Version uses a couple of times to speak of being spiritually blinded or deceived. For example, to the Galatians who had begun believing the false gospel of salvation by works, Paul cries out in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In the medieval church, which was ultimately completely apostatized into what we now know as the Roman Catholic religion, superstition and a tremendous fear of the devil were very prominent. In fact, the church generally taught that human beings were under the total dominion and control of the devil, much more emphasis on that than on personal sin, under the dominion and control of the devil until the devil was cast out. And how did you cast out the devil? Well, you baptized somebody. And so what did that lead to? The normal practice of baptism began to be infant baptism. Let's get rid of the devil early on in life. Well, because of the lack of sound theology and understanding of the doctrine of regeneration, which we talked about this morning, and because historically from the ancient Babylonians and Greeks and other cultures, most witches were women, this superstitious pseudo-faith and fear then began terribly to manifest itself in the persecution of women who were suspected of being witches. One historian estimates that in medieval Europe, nine million women, were put to death on any superstitious so-called evidence of being a witch. And of course, we know that in American history, the Salem witch trials, where over 200 people, both women and men, were accused of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692 and 93, 30 were found guilty and 19 were executed, 14 women and 5 men. This was, by the way, a classic case of mass hysteria. But once again, what do we know about witchcraft from the Bible? Not only is witchcraft soundly condemned in Scripture, but a lack of sound theology and confidence in the Lord has, has caused overreactions when there's a, where there's a witch in every home. We've seen this in history with professing Christians taking it upon themselves to judge and to execute. What does the Bible say about witchcraft? Well, we would look more to the solution. What is the solution to all forms of witchcraft? Whether it's the official church of Wicca today or people's attempts to manipulate demonic power or using drugs to create new realities or to amaze others as Simon the Magician of Acts chapter 8 was doing. Witchcraft of every kind is an attempt to have power and control outside the sovereignty of God. Now, this may be something blatant like the attempt to use demonic power for your own purposes or to something less blatant like attributing good fortune to any source other than God. I've been very lucky. If you want to be technical, that is a form of witchcraft. That's attributing power to something not God. This is a position of arrogance and other rebellion against God. And like every other sin, what is the solution to all forms of witchcraft? It's the same solution Paul applied to the slave girl in Acts 16. Look with me at verse 18. Here's the solution. And this she kept doing for many days. What is this? She followed Paul around, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. You notice that he was not annoyed at the girl. He was annoyed at the Spirit. 
He was annoyed at this demon. And the girl was freed. And the very clear implication is that she did receive Christ as Savior and became part of a brand new church at Philippi. How grateful she must have been. How thankful. No wonder in the years to come she is most likely among those that Paul writes of in Philippians 4 when he thanks them profusely for sending him money and help in his ministry and that for, for a time they were the only church supporting him. And she was part of that because she was thankful Witchcraft of any kind is overcome by the gospel of Christ. By the way, witchcraft also includes the use of false prophecy in charismatic churches. This is the classical biblical definition of witchcraft where you are using another power to do something that is supposedly of God. But it's overcome by the gospel. The entire concept of witchcraft represents ancient and pagan attempts to circumvent the one true living God to utilize demonic power for selfish purposes, for violent purposes, even wicked purposes. The witches of our world, whether the ones who actually call themselves witches, and there's many of them, all the way to those who simply reject the power of God in Christ for any other so-called power. Galatians 5.20 says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so witchcraft isn't cute. It's not a nice little story. The story of witchcraft is the story of people bound for hell because they wanted power instead of receiving the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It's a dark, terrible, horrible story filled with blood, filled with violence. And Halloween celebrates these sorts of things, ghosts, witches, death. But all of these things will be dealt with. I want to have you turn with me to Revelation 20. We're going to do a bit of a a Bible study here for a moment. We'll go back to the Old Testament also. But let's start in Revelation 20. Now we've been in this passage recently and it reads pretty straightforwardly. So I just want to highlight some observations from this terrifying scene. In Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. the, The classic great white throne judgment. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's just highlight some observations here. Verse 11. Him who was seated on the throne, this could be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said in John 5, 22, that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And from His presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. The great white throne judgment occurs between the burning and melting of the old creation and the coming recreation from the original elements. Chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. And so at this moment, there is literally no place. There's no geography. There's no location that the lost can hide from Christ. And now all the dead are on equal footing. There are no more kings, no more rulers, no more tyrants. Verse 12 says that both the great and the small are standing before the throne. And the implication is that they've been equalized. And then, you want to talk about horror? Verse 12, the books were opened. Why is that so horrific? These books are the record of all the sins of all the lost, a heavenly accounting of every person. Verse 12 makes this clear. Picture this, page one. His first wicked thought as a small child who knew right from wrong. And then page after page after page of every single wicked thought, word, and deed, all the way from the first sin to the very last one, all of them brought to account. But then another book is opened, the only book that could possibly give any hope to the lost, the book of life. But that hope is dashed. Verse 15 says that the names of the lost are not found written in the book of life. 
And so the dead are judged by what's in these books. They're judged by what they've done and by the fact that their names are not written in the, in the book of life. But the question is, how did this judgment occur? What, what was the, the significance? What was the circumstance here? Verse 13 says that the sea gave up the dead and death, likely meaning the, the dead bodies of the dead, and Hades, meaning the place the spirits went at death, they gave up the dead. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus explained in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. He said, and he, speaking of God the Father, has given him, that is Christ, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's citing Daniel chapter 12, the end of the prophecy of Daniel. I think it'd be useful for us to look at this. Turn with me back to Daniel 12. And while you're finding Daniel 12, just to give us a little context, near the end of chapter 10, we see in verse 18, it says, Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. So this is an angel sent from God to speak to Daniel. And the rest of the book from this part of chapter 10 forward is the final prophecy given to Daniel from God concerning future events on the earth. And as we get to chapter 12, this is going to feel familiar to you. Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Begins to sound familiar to us. This is speaking of the great tribulation and the great angel Michael beginning to deliver Israel, to save Israel. This gives specific information about Old Testament saints. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. But then there's a second resurrection and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel describes the saved and their future glory with God in verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many the righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm Daniel and I'm hearing I'm about to tell you everything that's going to happen at the end of time and and I'm going to give you more details. If I'm Daniel, I would have loved more detail. But verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And so the details stop. The words of this book are to be sealed. This is a word that means to be preserved but not fully understood. And he says, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, the book of Daniel was extremely relevant to the immediate readers. It must be. The word of God always is. And so the book of Daniel was meant to give God's people of Israel immediate comfort that God would ultimately deliver Israel from Gentile rule and oppression and fulfill all of his covenant promises to her. But they couldn't possibly comprehend all the significance of Daniel's words. But the angel promises, knowledge shall increase. In other words, as history unfolds, Daniel's prophecies, for example, concerning the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans would be understood more and more. And God would give us two spectacular commentaries on the book of Daniel. The first commentary is the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself while he was on earth. He cited Daniel often and he explained the prophecies of Daniel And the second commentary is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. The final book of our Bible, which makes the book of Daniel understandable. You probably noticed that the elements in this short Daniel 12 passage, there are a lot in common with Revelation 20. We have judgment. We have the book of life. We have the separation of the righteous in Christ from the unrighteous who die in their sin. We have what what the angel here calls everlasting contempt, literally meaning abhorrence of the lost. And we know from Revelation, that is the lake of fire which burns forever. And we have what the angel calls the time of the end. 
Well, the great white throne is about as end as end gets. It is the end of the line for the lost of all the ages. And so that's the context of these words. Turn back to Revelation 20. And I'm still trying to build a foundation for you here of, of something related to Halloween here in the great white throne scene. When Jesus said in John 5 that there will be a resurrection of those unto life and those unto judgment, quoting from Daniel 12, he was in essence compressing three separate events into one for, for the sake of, of simplicity or, or as we often see in the Bible, multiple events compressed into one statement. Three separate events. First, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 tells us of the resurrection of the church aid saints before the great tribulation. Daniel 12, second, tells us of the resurrection of the Old Testament saints after the Great Tribulation. And then both Daniel 12 and Jesus tell us of the resurrection of the lost after what event? Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those, were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this comes after the thousand year reign of Christ. Verse 7 And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And then you have the events of the final battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. Verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne. So Jesus has compressed three resurrections into one very concise statement. Now the resurrection of the saints, we all understand. I think we kind of get that. But why the resurrection of the lost? Why do they receive an immortal living body? In Mark 9, 48, Jesus described hell, the lake of fire, as the place where Quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He uses the Greek word Gehenna. We translate it hell. It's a transliteration from two Hebrew words meaning the valley of Hinnom. This is a place south of Jerusalem where children were once sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. During the reformation of the nation under King Josiah, the valley of Hinnom became Jerusalem's garbage dump where fires burned continually to, and consumed the, the daily worm-infested garbage that was brought out. And in Jewish thinking and lore and legend, the pictures of fire and worms vividly portrayed the place of future eternal punishment for the wicked. Worms eat that which is dead. And when there's no more food, then the worms die. And so if the worm does not die... This is speaking of eternal torment in which worms never run out of food. Now, this isn't to say that there are literally worms in hell. But the point is, is the, the experience of death in a body will never end. No death, no decomposition, no relief forever and ever and ever. None. In fact, even in Hades, in the waiting place of the lost, before the great white throne judgment, the rich man said in Luke 16 that he was in agony in these flames and he asked Abraham across the chasm to, to give him a little wa water to cool his what? His tongue. He was experiencing a physical sensation of agony. Why the resurrected bodies of the lost? God is giving to them a vehicle by which to experience the judgment of God for all eternity. And what does this have to do with Halloween? You ready for this? No more ghosts. All humanity, whether saved or lost, will be in resurrected bodies. No more ghosts. The lost are not eternal spirits to peacefully wander the earth forever. The lost have not gone on to a better place. The lost are not watching over their loved ones. The lost are not relieved of the burdens and pains of this life. And the lost are not ghosts with no physical sensations. 
No, in this time, the spirits of the lost are in Hades. In fact, there's an argument to be made that there's some sort of body that they have to experience judgment even there. But they're unable to communicate with the world. And at the great white throne, they will be given their bodies back to experience the judgment of God. No more ghosts. What about witches? Witchcraft at its core is any attempt to manipulate powers for selfish or self-serving or even wicked purposes to pointedly avoid the power of God and utilize demonic power to give the appearance of true supernatural ability, black magic, and so forth. It's an attempt to have power and control outside the sovereignty of God. We even see pseudo-Christians being judged by Christ for their witchcraft of false prophecy, claiming power outside of God. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, what, prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why is it in the Old Testament that the false prophet was to be stoned to death? Why was the standard of of perfection in place, 100% perfection in prophecy, anything less than that is to be sentenced to death because it was an act of witchcraft it was an act of wickedness and darkness to claim to have power that is not yours witchcraft is at its core the denial of the power of God and the attempted use of any other power and if we take that to its logical conclusion ultimately this describes every single person who denies Christ What happens to witchcraft at the great great white throne to the attempted use of any other power? In verse 10, the devil and by implication all of his demons are already in the lake of fire. There's no defense given by the lost to, to, to the judge on the great white throne. There's no appeal to good works or to ignorance or to anything. And now the secrecy and the mystery and the blackness and the darkness of witchcraft is completely exposed. The secret sins of the lost are all opened in the books. No more deception, no more worldly power. The great and the small of the dead all stand in equal terror before God. And all the dark books of incantations and spells written over the centuries are nowhere to be found. Now there's just the the books of the deeds of the lost and the book of life. And all who relied on any power other than the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, are all thrown into the lake of fire. What does that mean? No more witches. What does Halloween celebrate? Things like ghosts and witches and death. And all of them are eradicated and judged together. No ghosts. Just resurrected unbelievers experiencing eternal torment. No witches. No human beings attempting to manipulate demonic power. Now they are with the demons for all eternity. Here's the conclusion of God's plan to separate those who received Christ from those who would not. Look with me at Revelation 21 verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death if the psychologists are on to something the halloween is used by our culture to attempt to accept and face death and to desensitize the culture to the certainty of death i would call that a horribly wicked deception wouldn't you to attempt to soften the reality of the coming great white throne Because the great white throne is the real Halloween with real horror and real agony and real terror. The real Halloween isn't brought to you by ghosts or witches or even demons. The real Halloween is brought to bear at the judgment of a furious God whose holiness and purity and righteousness have been rejected and been mocked. 
The true horror of living in this sinful world is that every human being is born with a clock ticking toward death. And if before that clock runs out, a person will not heed the call of the grace of God and the gospel of Christ to have his sins forgiven, that person will take his last breath. His spirit will immediately be cast into the flames of Hades to await the the great white throne and to receive a resurrected body which will be cast forever where the worm does not die and the fire is never extinguished. I'm not here to make legalistic rules about Halloween. You have to do what your conscience dictates. But for me and what we decided in our family is that for us, Halloween might as well be, hey, let's play Great White Throne Judgment. I'd prefer to remember, what fellowship has light with darkness? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and Christ is the light who shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. As a young person, when Sylvia and I were early in our married life, we got to be counselors at a church camp. And the theme of the camp was from John 1.5 and it just said, no darkness. And the logo was a black circle with a red X through it. That gets the point across. I know the trick-or-treaters are cute. I know they wear adorable little costumes and they are being desensitized that the moment of their death is not real. And so let's give them the gospel. Amen? Let's do that. Our Father, we thank you so much. Even just talking about this is so, it, it, it is disturbing in a way, Lord, We want to cling to the cross. We want to look to the light of Christ. We want to see the the glorious light of the coming new Jerusalem. We want to look to the brilliance of heaven, to the glorious angels around the throne. We want to think of that glorious city that is coming that has no need of light of day, for the glory of God is its light. Halloween is not the biggest problem in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but it is indicative, Lord, of the deception that the darkened hearts of mankind are under, that as they hurtle toward their own deaths, toward their own eternal destinies, they are without mindfulness, they are ignorant of the doom that awaits them. And so, Lord, we would ask you in your mercy to save all that you would, We would ask you in your mercy and kindness to use our little church, Lord, to be an instrument of the gospel of Christ, that we might be a part of plucking people from the kingdom of darkness and seeing them placed into the kingdom of light. Lord, we sense the spiritual battle. Literally, on the same day, we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and the world celebrates wickedness and evil. On the same day. We look forward to a day when Christ reigns on earth and all is light and the darkness is gone. Lord, let us be the light of the world. Let us be the salt. Let us be that which brings the gospel to bear in the lives of our friends, neighbors, and co-workers, Lord. And we would give you all the glory and the praise. We pray in Christ's name, amen.